morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're at the Board of Education Curriculum Committee meeting on January 29th, 2020 for the podcast. I know the rest of you know what the date is. Um, this is Rachel Gilliar speaking. Today we have Dr. Stephanie Allen um, joining us from the Office of Pupil Personnel Services to talk about special education. Um, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Westerfeld to introduce our topic um, and tell us anything else she Good morning, everyone. Uh, I just want to thank Dr. Allen for uh, being here. Of course. Um, many of you, I'm sure, are aware uh, to some extent of our special education programs, but she's not only going to go through the different offerings that we have from elementary through high school, but she's also going to talk about some changes and um, some new programming that we are looking to implement in the upcoming school year. So I will turn it over to you. Yes, thank you, Dr. Westfeld. Hi, everybody. If everybody's okay, I'm going to sit. That's, you know, rather, we have a smaller group here today, so we'll just do kind of less formal. Um, thank you all for coming. I'm excited to, you know, talk about my department and what we do and what we can offer and then where we're going in the future. So it's really kind of an exciting time for us in PPS. Um, I talk fast. That's the first thing. So if you ever need me to slow down, just say slow down. And if you have questions as we go, ask them. I definitely enjoy kind of the open conversation and dialogue that we might have from um, the slides and, and what I'll talk about, all right? So the way I kind of organize the presentation is who are we? What do we do? What do we offer? How do you get there? And then what's the exit plan from that, those services? What do we hope that it looks like for our students? So we'll start with who are we? <coughs> We are responsible, first it stands for Pupil Personnel Services, for those of you that don't know. We like acronyms also in my department, so um, I'm sure I'm gonna slip up with some of them, but I tried to define them all. Um, we do provide these services, special education services, section 504 accommodations, and nursing services to the students in Fort Washington. Um, right now, our administrative team is myself as the executive director. Um, I have an assistant director who actually just joined us, Dale Bennett, she's here. And we have an associate administrator that many of you know also, Amity Howard-Reese. She's been with the district for a long time. Um, right now, we have about 930 students that are classified with IEPs, Individualized Education Programs. Um, and then we have about another 265 students that are um, receive accommodations through Section 504. And I'm going to talk about the, those two in a little bit and the differences between the two. Um, and again, I kind of give you just a breakdown of, of what the district is like. What do we have? We have 48 right now special ed teachers, 16 speech language pathologists, 12 and a half nurses, 11 psychologists, eight clerical, and that's mostly down here in my office in PPS. We have three so social workers and one teacher of the deaf. That's our actual district staff. We work with a lot of agencies also, which I'll cover that too. So what do we do? So we make sure that those IEPs that I mentioned before, individualized education plans, programs, and our Section 504 plans are implemented correctly. That's really our primary responsibility. We want to make sure that our students are getting what they're supposed to be getting. And if a document says it, we want to make sure it's happening. Um, just to clarify, CSE is our Committee on Special Education, and CPSE is Committee on Preschool Special Education. Um, another part of our responsibility here in district is we oversee services for students beginning at the age of three. So three through five in the preschool program prior to them coming in at school age. And that's when the CSE takes over. 
Um, we oversee also the provision of the services through the various agencies, like I mentioned before. Those are things like OT, PT, behavior consultation, parent training. Um, over the last couple of years, we've gotten a little bit more into job coaching for some of our students. Um, we have an assistive technology consultant that we work with and also vision services. Uh, vision services mostly come through BOCES, but we do have some students that receive those services as well. Um, we also make sure that the services for students in other out-of-district programs are being implemented appropriately. Right now, we're working with about 40 different state-approved schools, both at the preschool level and at the school age level. Um, most of them are preschool schools, preschool schools. Um, so, but we do have some school age students. Out of the 930 students, how many of them are out of district? Um, there are approximately 70. 70 school-aged. Um, I don't know the number off the top of my head for preschool, but there's about 70 out-of-district students. Mm -hmm. Preschool's more common. Preschool is a little bit more common. Most right. of the students are, yeah. How yes. many out-of-district has Out-of-state. Yeah, right now, I really think That's we might high. only have, I think we only have one out-of-state right now, I think. Off the top of my head, it's one. But it would be a small number if it was it's ever higher than that. Yeah, it would only be a few, handful of kids if we were ever out-of-state. Um, we also oversee the services that are provided to two what they call district of location schools. And that's St. Peter's School and our Vincent Smith School in district. District of location basically means regardless of what community you live in, let's say you live in Oyster Bay and you send your student to St. Peter's, Fort Washington is still responsible for providing those services to the students. The same thing with Vincent Smith. Okay. What's an IEP? For those of you that don't know, because I know I, I, some of my parents are here, so they know, it's a written document that outlines everything we need to know about the student, who they are, what they can do, what they need help with, what their programs are, their services, it's everything. It's a roadmap, a blueprint, whatever you want to call it, to that student and how we're going to educate that student for that year. Every IEP is a school year IEP. We review it annually. We come back, what's going on, how's your student progressing? How are they still struggling? What do we need to do? What do we need to change? And we have a conversation about that. These are the things that are all required. I'm not gonna read the whole list to you, but these are all of the things that are required on that document. And for those of you that have an IEP, you see all of these different areas. Um, we have our present levels, how it impacts how they can perform. The major one, and usually at an initial CSE or CPSE, the conversation is about that disability classification. At the preschool level, there's one category. It's preschooler with a disability. At the CSE level, there's 13 different categories. Um, it could be anything from learning disabled, speech language impaired, autism, deaf, hard of hearing, kind of have a, a big gamut. But that's really part of the conversation at that initial CSE. And every three years, we have an updated conversation about is that child still evidencing that disability and do they still require services? Um, an important thing on that document are the annual goals, <clears throat> really important. We put those on there, they have to be measurable and they're annual, they run the year. What are we doing with your student this year specifically to develop their uh, skill set? We come in, we know they're having some issues in different areas, we put that on there specifically to do for our teachers. They do provide progress reports, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, regularly to parents so that they know how their student is progressing throughout the year. For students, and we'll talk about this in a little bit too, for students that participate in either what we call the NISA, New York State Alternate Assessment, they will also have short-term objectives. 
So we even take that annual goal and break it down a little bit further to make sure that we're really targeting their skills and, and making a plan to get them where they need to be. Um, and we also have short-term objectives for students that receive services through CPSA. Okay? Um, I think I said most of the other things in there. A big thing, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, um, beginning at the age of 15, we have to start talking about transition planning for our students. What is it going to start to look like after you graduate? So, What's the Section 504 plan? It's a little bit different. It's not as involved as an IEP. But it's still a written plan. It still outlines what the student's needs are, what do we have to do, what accommodations or modifications do we need to provide to that student so that we can give them equal access. That's the big thing about Section 504, is we want to make sure that our students are getting equal access. Because of their disability, they might not be able to do something. Um, I often use the example of a student with diabetes. They might need to go out of the classroom regularly to check their blood. They might have to have snacks and water and different things like that. We're taking them out of education to do those things. What accommodations and, and modifications do we need to have in place to make sure they're getting that appropriate education? Okay. Again, stop me if you have any questions. <laughs> um, so right now, let's focus a little bit on what our specific special education programs are here in Fort Washington. We have a really wide array of things that we can offer to our students in district. When we have to, we do look out of district, but we have a pretty wide range here. Um, I kind of put it from least restrictive to most restrictive. Um, related services, these are students that just get OT, just get speech, maybe just get some counseling support services. Um, but again, that's based on their specific need and their weaknesses. Next step up from that are what we call consultant teacher services. Now we're gonna get a special education teacher involved. I'm going to go through each of these on, on separate slides, so I won't get too much into them, but it's just kind of an overview. After the consultant teacher, we get to our resource room programs. Again, those are students that are in general education, but are getting pulled out for some support with a special ed teacher. Um, right now, we do have inclusion classes that we offer at both Weber and Schreiber. Uh, again, we'll talk about that in a bit. And then we have our special classes. We offer a couple of different options, both at the elementary and middle and high school levels. Um, that is a class taught by a special education teacher all day long. So, related services can range from, like I said before, a whole host. The, the important thing about related services is the IEP always includes the ratio of frequency and duration. It must tell us exactly how many times a week we're getting speech and what size group. It has to say that. If it doesn't say that, it's not a related service. <laughs> Sometimes you talk about consultant services, which doesn't give that level of detail. But if, it, if we're going to give them a direct service, it has to have that information. Um, and I kind of just give you a list of the different things that we offer here in district. Um, we have speech, we have counseling, OT, PT, uh, parent training and counseling, we have hearing services, vision services, orientation and mobility, and job coaching. And I'm sure there's others, those were the ones that just came when I was off the top of my head doing the <coughs> presentation. Um, I mentioned a minute ago consultation services. Now these are when we have staff members, consultants coming in to work with staff to address specific needs of the students. We have behavioral consultation, we have behavior specialists that come in and work with our staff and our, our uh, students, occupational therapy consultation, PT consultation, and the other one that's really been very important for our students is assistive technology consultation. Um, our consultant is great, and she really comes in and gives us some great information. But again, she's working staff to staff, not so much with the students. That's really the difference with a consult service. 
So consultant teacher services, like I said before, we have a special ed teacher who's assigned to work with a student in a general education class. The student's still in their gen ed second grade class. We have a special ed teacher assigned to that student, and they can do a couple of different things. They can either do what we call an indirect consultant teacher. Again, now that's teacher to teacher. Special ed teacher is working with the gen ed teacher to make sure any modifications, um, test accommodations, program modifications, those things are happening and they're really monitoring the student's progress. The gen ed teacher might need support in how to modify something for a student. That would be an indirect special ed consultant teacher support. Then we have the direct consultant teacher support. Now that's when the teacher is working directly with the student in the classroom. They'll push in for a certain period of time. They provide some specially designed instruction within that classroom. Sometimes it's not even just to their student. The teacher may opt to include other students in there as well if they're doing groups or centers. We might do stuff like that. Um, generally, this service is about two hours a week. By law, it has to be a minimum of two hours. And for the most part, we do stick to two hours. We find that that, does, that model does work for our students. In some cases, the CSE can consider a combination of resource room and consultant teacher. But in that case, it has to be a minimum of 180 minutes a week. So now we're gonna have a pull out and a push in kind of support. When we talk about resource room, it'll make a little bit more sense. So they're getting really uh, skill development within the resource room, then we go in the classroom and make sure that generalization is happening. Resource room, again, we have a special education teacher. They work with student a minimum of three hours a week. Most of the models in our elementary schools is either five times a week or four times a week. Um, the middle school generally is always the five times a week because it's scheduled in. Shriver, well, that's a whole other story because they're scheduled. <laughs> um, sometimes a combo of two or three and four times, it, it depends upon the student and the schedule. <clears throat> um, again, these students are getting some specially designed instruction in groups that are no larger than five. And that's really important about resource room. The groups cannot be any more than five students in that grouping. Um, and it's usually for one period of the day. Um, groups are made of students with similar levels of academic, social, physical, and management. Those are the four main areas on an IEP when we talk about a student's functioning, social, physical, academic, and management. So when we put our groups together for resource room, we want them to be similar. They have similar needs, and the teacher can work on the same thing with all the students. The students also work as models for the other students within the group, um, so it really works out nicely. Um, the uh, special ed teacher looks at the IEP goal, goals, obviously, and we make sure that that program is being implemented, make sure the program modifications are being implemented, testing accommodations are being implemented within the classroom. But they're also within the resource room, they're going to do some pre-teaching and reteaching, differentiated instruction for our students, even in those small groups. Um, other things that they would work on as it relates to the student's academic needs are study skills, organizational skills, and time management. Those seem to be popping up a little bit more often um, lately. Our integrated co-teaching services. Right now, um, we have, like I said before, at Weber and Schreiber, we offer the program. And again, we have that specially designed instruction for our group of students, both disabled students and non-disabled students within that same classroom. Okay, the model that we have consists of one special education teacher and one general education teacher in the class at the same time. The special education teacher, however, is making, she's still, or he's still responsible for making sure those goals are being addressed and the IEP is being implemented appropriately. But those teachers co-plan, co-teach, and co-assess for the entire class. Can I ask you a question? Um, sure. Um, are they, is the, does the special ed teacher follow the student from classroom to classroom to classroom? Because as you get into Schreiber, 
you have such different paths that all the kids take. So how does that? So the at Weber, the answer is yes. They're uh, assigned to one teacher. She goes to all of the four core classes, and then they have a backup study period with just the special education teacher. At Schreiber, they have different teachers. So they might have in science, it's a team of one teacher, and then they have a backup period with a different teacher. But it, they don't follow them around at Schreiber. And most of that is because it's so content heavy to have a, spe you know, a, a special ed teacher know the content for all of those, because these are region-bound classes. Um, to have them know all of that information is a lot. And it, we want the students to get the benefit of the teacher. So when the integrated co-teach, mm -hmm. uh, just for the benefit, you would have, there's a science, and then there's a science special ed teacher in the room. Yes. And then if you went to the English class, it's an English and a different English special education teacher. Correct. And you may yet have another one for Correct. resource room time. Correct. Yes. How do they um, share the teaching with the in the classroom that has kids of you know kids that have special needs and kids that don't have those same special needs? How do the does how does the teachers go back and forth between them as they teach? There's a couple of different models that they use. You know, there's the one teach one float around the classroom, there's a co-teach, there's um, where they're both teaching, sometimes we divide the room, group work, so sometimes the teach, one teacher's with one group, another teacher's with the other group, then there's a third independent group. So there's different models that they can use within the classes. Um, a lot of time what works because of the, the content heaviness at the high school is really that two-teach kind of model and then dividing it amongst the two teachers. Is, is there any data on how the students without disabilities fare in the uh, co-teaching model versus the ones that aren't in the co-teaching model? Not at this point. However, fast forward, we are looking to do some things with inclusion and that's something that I want to make sure that we're looking at, definitely. Um, Okay, any other questions on that? <coughs> All right, and I, I just kind of outlined it a little bit and then to some of the questions that we had at Weber. Again, it's ELA, Social Studies, Science, and Math. One teacher follows to all of those um, in grades six, seven, and eight. And then at the high school, right now, we offer inclusion in ninth grade for English, Global One, Living Environment, and Algebra One, and in 10th grade in Geometry and Earth Science. Our special classes are classes of students with disabilities that are grouped together, again, with that similar learning profile um, to be provided with some specialized instruction with a special education teacher. They're with a special ed teacher all day long. And usually there's at least one teaching assistant in the classroom that does support the teacher um, to make sure the students are progressing to the greatest extent possible from the program. Um, I said that they're grouped similarly. And right now we have four different special education programs here in Port Washington. And I'm going to go through, I have a slide on each one, but we have RISE, MILE, TLC, and INVEST. And those are all the little acronyms for the, the program names. So let's talk about RISE and MILE first. These are both state assessment regions bound programs for our students. Um, so the RISE program, which is Reaching Individual Success Through Education, is um, in elementary grades K through five. These are not multi-grade level classes. They are specific to that grade level. Um, we have a teacher in each one of those grade levels. Um, the ratio right now is a 12-1-1, meaning that there's no more than 12 students in that classroom, one special ed teacher, and one teaching assistant. Um, right now we have them at Guggenheim and Daly. I'll, I'll show the layout in a minute. Um, and again, they are given that grade level specific content and we do prepare our students for the state and district assessments, the same ones that everybody else in the gen ed is taking. 
Um, mile, so once you grow from mile, uh, rise, you go into the mile program, which is our secondary programs in grades six through 12 at, at Weber and Shriver. Um, they are 15-1, no more than 15 students and one special education teacher. Um, we have the grade specific curriculum in ELA Math, Science, and Social Studies. And there are occasions where our students can be mainstreamed as well. If, if we have a student at Weber that math is really their strong point, they can be in a general education for math or, or in a special education class. Um, we do mainstreaming at the elementary level, it just works a little bit differently. But. So here's RISE right now, 20, um, this school year at Guggenheim is our kindergarten first and second grade, and then they transition over to daily for grade four and five. And again, all grade specific. And those are, the, the, it doesn't matter what catchment area you're in, you're, you go there. Correct, right. correct. Even if you were, home, ooh, sorry, Salem was your home school, you, we transport you to one of these classes if you need it. And then at my, uh, mile at the secondary level, it's always confusing at the secondary level when I do the slide. <laughs> at Weber, we do offer it in six, seven, and eight. We have a teacher that teaches ELA science, social studies, and math, four separate teachers. That teacher stays with the student over the entire time if they're in the mile program at Weber. So one of our teachers does math, six, seven, and eight. One of our teachers does social studies, six, seven, and eight. Um, and that's pretty consistent. And then we have a speech therapist that's dedicated to working with the students in the MILE program. She pushes in during both ELA and social studies classes across those three grade levels. Um, at Schreiber High School, it gets a little bit more complicated um, because of the content area and what they need to graduate. <clears throat> in ninth grade, we do have it in all four of the core subjects. Um, these are, again, different teachers, similar to Weber. If you're in science, you're gonna have the same science teacher, nine, 10, and 11. Um, the same social studies teacher, she does all of those classes, the same math teacher. I actually like that model because the teachers get to know the students very well and they get to know the curriculum really well. Um, that lag time that we have in the beginning of the year of teachers getting to know their students, we're off and running at Weber and Schreiber because they know the kids already, it really is great. Um, our other special education program is TLC and Invest. Um, TLC is Transitional Learning Class. That's down at um, our elementary level for students in K through fifth grade. The ratio of this class is an eight one two, no more than eight students, one teacher, two teaching assistants. These are multi-grade level classes. Right now we only have two. I, I have a slide for that too, but right now we only have two classes. They are multi-grade levels. We have a dedicated speech pathologist for this program. Um, they're at Manor Haven and Guggenheim. And our curriculum consists really of functional academics and getting our students ready to participate in the New York State alternate assessment. So they are not taking the same assessments, the ELA or the math test that the other students are. The New York State alternate assessment is aligned to those standards, but it does give these students an opportunity of showing what they've learned in a different way versus the traditional pencil and paper format. Um, more of a portfolio. Yeah, it's more of a portfolio, and there's some computer-based components now that they've added. Um, Invest is the secondary program to TLC, so when they move up to Weber, they go into this class. There's one class at Weber and one class at Schreiber. Um, at Weber, it continues to be an 812, and at Schreiber, it's a 1211. Um, again, we're getting them ready for the New York State alternate assessments. They're not taking regences at the high school. Um, there's an increased focus on vocational training as the students move up through this program. Um, and over the last few years, um, this year in particular, we've done a lot with adding job coaching at the high school as a, as a component of the Shriver class. And just a little narrative there. Manor Haven has the K-1-2, one class, 
uh, multi-grade level. Guggenheim has the second class, it's three, four, and five. Some parents do opt to keep their students an extra year at Guggenheim and an extra year at Weber so that they're only spending six at the high school. Students in this class, well, any special education student can stay until they're <coughs> 21. Most of these students stay until they're 21 with us. So that's why some parents make the option of kind of holding them a little bit so they don't spend eight years at Shriver. They have a little extra at each of the levels. Okay, and again, Weber is six, seven, eight, one class. Shriver is nine through 12, one class. So backing up a little bit, how do you get here? How, do you, how are you deemed eligible for any of these programs? So if students refer to the CSE, CPSE, and I put by parent or school staff, it can be a doctor, it could be an outside facilitator, consultant, advocate, anybody can refer a student basically. Um, parents provide written consent for the evaluation, that's an important one, that written consent. Um, that's actually the date that the clock starts. I know that's a question a lot of people often ask. We have 60 days to complete the evaluation process from the day of written consent. Calendar days or school days? Calendar. Yep, it's calendar days. So Summer could be tough. Summer could be tough. <laughs> December break when we have two weeks off is tough. <laughs> so yes. <clears throat> what is required as part of the initial evaluation is a psychological, a social history, an educational, a physical exam, and then anything else that we deem appropriate. So sometimes we need speech and language, sometimes it's an OT, sometimes it's PT, and we add all of those things in there. Again, we meet within that 60 calendar days, get, go through those evaluations, get the staff involved. Um, the staff are required members of the CSC to come and talk. And then if we do determine that the student's eligible for services, that's when that IEP is written. Um, most of the time, staff will come with a draft document to the CSC because they're putting their test scores in. If they think that a student may qualify, they start working on what could be potential goals, and we do review that during the CSE meeting or CPSE meeting. Um, 504, similar process. Somebody refers the student to the Section 504 committee. There's no formal evaluations done by the school district, though. In that case, because most of the time it's for a medical reason, the parents are providing us with that backup medical documentation that the 504 committee needs. Um, and then again, we have staff come, we sit, we have a conversation, and if they are eligible, we write up our 504 plan. Okay. Measuring progress. Our staff collects information related to students' individual goals, and again, remember 504 doesn't have goals, back to the IEPs, and they report on that progress for the goals. Um, progress reports for elementary are done three times a year with the report cards, so parents will get that information as well. It's their IEP goals with the progress remarks in there. Um, and then at the secondary level, it's four times a year. Again, it goes along with the report cards. Um, I mentioned this early on. Annual review meetings are held every year. We're, in, we're starting that season now. It's busy, it's fun, we get through it. <laughs> so every single student that's classified with an IEP uh, or a 504 has a meeting at this time of the year. We review where they were, how the year was, what we need to do, and what they require for the following school year. Um, and I do mention that we have them for 504 students as well. Um, Earlier on, I also mentioned no less than every three years, we do what's called a reevaluation. So we do basically that whole initial evaluation again to make sure that student is still qualifying for services, still deemed appropriate and eligible. And again, it gives us more information. Is there something about the student's program or uh, services that we need to tweak? So how do we get out? There's a couple different ways. Our goal is always to declassify students. We really do want to give them the skills they need to be as independent learners as possible. So that's always our goal is to get them there. 
we do get to a point where some students don't require that support anymore. And we have a few options for them. One is we can just declassify you. There's no accommodations needed, no additional support. You've done well, you're good, you're no longer considered a special education student. Another option is what they call declassification with testing accommodations. For some students, they still require their accommodations. They're using their extended time. We know that they need to be in a location with minimal distractions. So this should be part of the conversation that happens at a declassification meeting. And if those students require them, it stays on the document. That plan follows them. Um, my office does maintain a list of students with declassification, uh, declassification test accommodations. Because even if you were declassified in sixth grade and you're in 12th, you can still access those accommodations. Um, we're working on some ways to increase the communication about that, because right now we just email it out to people, but it's not the most efficient way. So we're looking at things to do there. Um, a third option is declassification with support services. We know that for one year, you're going to need a little extra support. It's not just about the testing accommodations. You might need a psychologist to check up on you, you know, if you're a student with anxiety. Just somebody that's going to check up on you once a month, you're going to have a little bit of service. It happens for one year and it automatically ends. There's no annual review, it's done, unless of course there's a problem. If there's a problem, we come back to committee. But most of the time there's not. And then again, if you have any testing accommodations, those can continue for the student. For some students, we do refer them to a 504 if we find that in addition to those testing accommodations, they need program modifications. So program modifications are things that happen in the classroom for the student. You know, the, a common one is preferential seating. You know, we know that you must be seated away from distractions or near a door uh, for whatever reason. So if you need those kinds of things, most of the time there'll be a conversation about referring you to the 504 committee so that that committee can kind of then pick up the supports that you need. Um, so that just, again, to point out the difference, you have a declassification just with test accommodations. If you need program modifications in addition, we would go through 504, okay? Foreign language exemption is something we start talking about in about eighth grade, sometimes a little bit earlier because we do have a foreign language program at Weber. Um, but if you are declassified ninth grade or later, you can retain a foreign language exemption. So if at some point the CSE had a conversation and deemed because of your disability, you can't take a foreign language. As long as you're declassified after ninth grade, you can keep that. If it happens in sixth grade and you're declassified in eighth, you can't hold on to that. Um, and those are special scenarios where usually the staff will give me a call and say, hey, we have this kid and this is kind of what we're thinking. What should we do? And we come up with a plan because we certainly don't want to take away something from a student that they need. Um, if you're a student with a foreign language exemption, there is a foreign language credit required to graduate that is waived for students with a foreign language exemption. Um, and we can declassify students at any point during the school year. The most common time that it happens is at annual review time, but Sometimes we have those conversations in December, we just want to give them a half year, see how they're doing, and then it happens. But it really can happen at any point during a year. <coughs> yeah, this is probably my least favorite part, <laughs> is diplomas, credentials, and certification certificates. Because this gets complicated. Very. <laughs> um, I rely, we have a wonderful guidance department at our high school, and um, my special, special education chairperson, Christy McAleer, they know this stuff it's amazing. Um, so I rely heavily on them when this kind of conversation starts. But again, another way that we look at students exiting special education is through the, the graduation um, process. Um, we have students that get advanced diplomas or regents diplomas. I have some 
letters up there that say CDAS. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, for students in special education, and I believe ENL also, yes. they can have access to a local diploma. With the Regences, passing is 65 and above. You have to have a 65 or above on a Regents to, uh, to pass that uh, Regents exam. For students that are working towards a local diploma, they can get between a 55 and a 64, and it's still considered passing. Okay, that's considered our low pass safety net option for students, and that's for any classified student. Um, the compensatory safety net. So now, you have to have a 55 or higher on the ELA or math, but you can get a lower score on your sciences and social studies. I almost call it like borrowing points, because if you got more points on this, if you got less points on this, it kind of got you to where you needed to be. Um, so that's another option to get to the local diploma. Um, another option that came out a few years back was the pathway option, what they call four plus one. So you have to have the four core areas and then you can get a plus one in each of any of these other areas. Humanities, arts, STEM, low language, which is language other than English. CTE is career and technical education. And then our CDOS, which I'll talk about in a minute, career development and occupational studies. I told you we like acronyms. <laughs> We're good at them. Um, and then the last option that came out a couple of years ago is the superintendent's determination option. These are for students who are in a regents-bound curriculum. They're passing their regents classes, but we can't get to those other options. They just can't get that um, 45. You can't get the 55 on ELA, but they've shown over other ways that they have demonstrated mastery. And there are, there's a process to go through where we can appeal, so to speak, the decision and potentially give a student a local diploma. Um, it's not common. Most students do usually make it through with one of those other options for the local diploma. The CDOS is a credential. It's not a diploma, but it is an additional credential that you can get either with the local or the region's diplomas or as a standalone. We do have some students that exit at 21 just for the CDOS, which is, stands for Career and Development and Occupational Studies. This really was designed to get our students ready for the world of work. They have to participate in 254 work-based learning hours that's supervised by a job coach. And then there's paperwork, an employability profile that is filled out by the employer. And then some follow-up paperwork on our end that shows that they did meet these specific career development standards. There's a whole list of standards um, for those students. Um, so again, we're looking to get them ready for the world of work after leaving us. And the last one is our skills and achievement commencement credential. These are for those students that I mentioned earlier, most of them participate in the New York State Alternate, not most, all participate in the New York State Alternate Assessment. It, set, it took the place of, for those of you that remember the old IEP diplomas, which really says that you met your IEP goals, you've done what you've needed to do, and you're ready for what comes next. Um, it's a little bit different. Again, there are some standards that we do have to make sure our students are ready for. They have to fill out an exit summary that says, yes, the student has demonstrated mastery in each of these areas, and they are ready to leave. Um, most of the students that get the SAC uh, credential are 21 when they leave us. So is there anybody who gets thrown out at 21 who doesn't have any of those credentials? I haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it. We've had students, unfortunately, that'll drop out. Right, yeah. Um, but no, I haven't seen it. Um, and that, to, to that point too, for students that do decide to drop out, they can come back 
if they're a classified student, they have until 21 to get one of these. Um, so, and, and we always do, we tell parents at the time that a student drops out that they have that option, they can come back. Um, and we do, actually just the other day we had a student come back who said, yep, I'm ready, I wanna be back, I'm ready to go. Which is, that's a good thing, we wanna see that too. So, where are we going? So most of you know, I mean, I've been here for seven years, I've been in my current position for two years now, it's given me a chance to really kind of see what we have, what's out there in the world of special education and where do we wanna go. Um, a big thing for me is to take a better look at what our administrative team is doing. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's three titles. There's executive, assistant, and associate. My understanding is years ago, it was more of a hierarchy. The associate, um, it was a different title at the time too, it was a curriculum associate, reported to the curriculum associate who reported to the director. Um, I, I haven't been looking at that. As you can see, the department's huge. There's lots and lots to do. So over the last couple of years, um, I, I've realigned a little bit. Amity, who was strictly preschool, now is preschool through grades two. And then Dale is grades three through eight. And even that's 12, thank you. Even that is, is big. Um, so you know, I can constantly take a look at those, the structure and what we can do to how to make, get the most for our students um, out of that. Um, I'm sure there's some rumors out there, people may have heard, but there is a lot of conversation at this point about de developing an elementary inclusion program. Um, and we are moving forward with that plan. Um, I met with Dr. Mioli. I do anticipate the program to be over at SUSA. Um, we've had some great conversations. Um, I have a consultant in mind to work with, so we're really kind of moving forward. It's exciting, the staff is excited. Um, I think in that process, I want to kind of strengthen what we're doing at Weber and Schreiber and, and to the point from earlier, really taking a look at the data for all of the students. Are, you know, are they getting the best out of this program and the most that they potentially can? Does it benefit everyone in the classroom? Um, another thing that we don't have here is an actual extended school year program, which is summer school. For students that demonstrate regression, the CSE is responsible to provide summer services. We do provide summer services to our students. Right now they're mostly individualized. It's a few times a week. Um, I'm looking to do more of a summer school program where the students come, there's social activities, there's the uh, services that they would require, and really developing a program for the students to come to. Um, we want to continue to develop our transition program. That's a lot of conversation that we have with the team up at Shriver. Um, like I said, this year we have a job coach that does come in for, I think it's two hours a day. She takes the students out to various job locations. Um, but again, want to continue to look at that for all of our students. Not all of our students are college bound. Um, so we want to make sure that we're getting them prepared in the best way possible and providing them with a whole host of opportunities, you know, that they can take advantage of um, through the transition process. Um, another goal of mine, we had that slide from earlier back, all of the RISE classes and both of the TLC classes I would like to see in one building. Um, and I know some of the parents are here and they can attest to it. It's a rough transition. You know, they don't belong to a school and I feel strongly that they need to belong to a school. Um, and just continuing to look at our professional development programs. The last couple of years I've done some stuff on IEP writing and the staff has loved it. We've done progress monitoring two years ago, last year and we did IEP writing this year. 
Um, they've loved it. They've loved the consultant that has come in. They really want more of it. And, and the conversations that are happening at CSE are really evolving. They're looking more at the data. What's, what, how are our students doing? How are they progressing? And, and they're hungry for it, which is a great place to be. Obviously, with the development of the inclusion program, there'll be a lot of professional development going on for that. Um, and another thing that I've really been talking to the staff a lot about is reading. I think it's the primary responsibility in education period is to teach students to read. And um, I've been doing some work with my elementary special education teachers in RISE on different reading programs that we can consider bringing into the district. And again, they're hungry for it. They're really excited about it. Um, and it should be good, hopefully. Um, and then the last thing is 504. Um, this year I did a few, a few online workshops with the psychologist in particular about what 504 is, what it should look like, how we should progress forward with this. We've implemented some new procedures for that this year. And really just getting everybody out there having a better understanding of what a Section 504 plan is about. So, it's a lot. We'll get it. All right. Thank you. Any Thank questions? You. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> You're sure well done. Oh. do the test results reflect what the child has actually accomplished in the classroom or learned in the classroom? So, for example, if there are IEP goals and the child is meeting the IEP goals mm -hmm. and learning in the classroom, do those tests accurately reflect how the child is doing in the classroom? You mean the standardized test or the state assessment? All of them, Both. grades three through eight, and okay. the regents exam because those are hurdles. Those are gates. Those are hurdles. Yeah. So I'm wondering. It's a complicated question because they don't really measure the same thing, right? A standardized test for us, when you know the the special education teachers do educational testing, they're testing reading, writing, math. They're testing skills in isolation. What can you decode? Can you comprehend? But they're single subtests. I don't, know, I don't know any class that only requires a student to decode. You've got to decode and comprehend all at the same time. And by the way, you've got to do it fluently. So there is a little bit of a disconnect. What the, and I've worked on the, with the staff here as being more diagnostic. What do those tests, testing is like a thing for me. <laughs> I love testing. What do those test scores mean? And how are we seeing in that in the classroom? And if we're not seeing it in the classroom, and we've had this often, I'll have a student that'll come out with a reading comprehension score of you know, 100, dead average. But the teacher will say, that's not happening at all. Okay, how do we bridge that gap? Because that's the responsibility of the special ed teacher. We know they have a skill set. It's clear. It's not happening here. Let's make sure it happens. And that, to me, is where the goal comes in, so that we can make sure it's happening in the classroom. In terms of the state assessments, again, they're, they're measuring what's happening in the classroom. So with accommodations, most of our students do perform well on those tests, both the regences and the state assessments three through eight, um, but they are allowed to use their accommodations. Um, and as long as we're seeing growth in the classroom, we do see some nice progress on that. And if we don't, that's another conversation for the CSA. What's going on? How can we make sure that we're getting students what they need to get? Do we need to give additional support? At the high school in particular, to your point, those are high stakes tests. There are students that do get additional support beyond just the special education classrooms or resource room to get them ready for the regences and make sure those they're getting where they need to be. Did that answer? Somewhat. Okay. Yeah. 
I guess it's so short, th short th th there's th not a direct alignment yeah. per se. Yeah. yeah. I just want to first of all to thank you for because this is in fact a very comprehensive yeah. presentation and <laughs> for you. someone who hasn't had a child in the program, you know, this this is very good for me. Uh, I have a question though. You talked about the, your vision for the future mm -hmm. and also sitting on the budget committee. Mm -hmm. uh, my question to you is that your vision and specifically when you talk about the inclusion classes at the elementary school and the summer school program mm -hmm. extension, what are the cost implications of your vision for mm -hmm. us? Like what, what would you, if you could, what if would I you could. get? Yeah. Right. If I could, if I could, oh, I could get a lot. <laughs> um, inclusion obviously does require hiring teachers, you know, so that there is a budgetary impact in that sense. Um, we do get other grant funding through the special education office that I do plan to use for a lot of this. Um, summer school in particular is actually something we already get funding from the state for. Um, so my hope is to, one, take a look at how much we're getting from the state now, and if I look at a program, I want to make sure that they're equivalent costs. A summer school program really shouldn't cost, a special education summer school program, I'll say, really shouldn't cost the district that much money because we do get a lot of money back from the state to run that particular program. Um, the downside of it is you're always getting the funding back after. Right. You know, so it does sometimes run in the red, but um, we always do get some level of funding back. So, but with regards to the inclusion class, how many teachers are you are you looking to add? Over the course of three years, I'm looking at six teachers. Six teachers yeah, over three I would years. Yeah, because I want one in every grade level. Okay, so two teachers per year. Two teachers per year, yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Stephanie, I think the um, oh, first a reminder for everybody since we are on the podcast, try to identify yourself before you speak. <laughs> Um, this is Rachel Gilliar speaking. Um, I think the addition of the ICT classes at the elementary level is going to be kind of a hot topic. Yes. Um, are you able to flesh that out for us a little bit more? Is there more detail yet? I know it's budget dependent mm -hmm. and it's not completely done, but if you can tell a little bit more about the plan, I think probably that would be helpful and that probably mm -hmm. a lot of people have questions about it. Sure. So my plan right now is over the course of three years to grow the program so that we're adding two teachers every year. The plan right now is to look at second and third grade in particular. So students currently in first and second, that would be going second, third next year. My thinking behind that, again, we talked about it earlier with students going to one building, if we're looking at putting a program like this in SUSE, par older parents might be a little bit more reluctant to move their student later on versus second or third grade where they have a little bit more time to spend with a, with a school before they move on to Weber. Um, and then it would grow out to first and fourth, and then K and five. Um, again, the thinking is we'll do some training in the second, third, um, then we can train out, and we get a better idea of what our program is gonna look like. I feel strongly that this is an academic program. Our students in this program have academic deficits that require something a little bit more than a period of day of resource room. They need it throughout the course of the school day. So in that, we want to make sure that we're providing that training, getting staff ready, and having the best opportunities for our students. Um, what we also have to look at, obviously, there could be potential transportation piece of this. Um, Robin does an amazing job of getting everybody where they need to be. So you know, she's been looped in, but now that we have a better idea um, of where it's going, I'll have more conversations with her. Um, another area we'll have to keep an eye on is speech and psychology. 
Right now, at SUSE, there's two speech therapists and one psychologist. If we're looking at adding, essentially, a program across six grade levels, there could be some impacts over that. But we won't really know that until the program continues to grow a little bit more. Um, I'm also looking at strengthening up what we're doing at Weber and Schreiber through the process with the consultant as well to kind of make it a continuous program. So at SUSE currently, mm -hmm. you have probably four to five classes depending on the cohort per grade level. Mm -hmm. Would that increase the number of classes per grade level? Um, or would you be working within the same number of classes and range, range which right. I guess an additional question that adds to that is how many children are we talking about taking right. from the other four elementary schools to come to SUSE and how many of them are already at SUSE? Correct. Do you have a sense for that? Already? Sort of. So, so the secondary, yes, yeah, so part one, I look at about seven students for the class. Um, the way inclusion should work in a real, in the perfect model is a third of the class. So roughly saying, you know, you have 24 students in a class, seven, you know, eight is really the top of where you want to be. So in speaking with Dr. Mioli, it would not at this point require any additional general education sections. Um, he can absorb seven more students, even if they're, and none of them come from SUSE um, without an issue. Um, I did meet with the psychologist the other day to get a sense of who would be potential candidates. Um, and I have a little from every building. So the process that has its work right now for Weber, and I'm going to use the same model, is we have a team of people that come down, do an observation of each of the students, and identify what's our best functional grouping of students. Because again, we still have that um, mandate that they should all be appropriate to each other and similar, similar needs, similar skills. And so we want to put together that, that functional grouping for the students. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, uh, first, uh, Larry Greenstein, uh, first I'll ask you, uh, is there any potential savings in the inclusion model from students who may not need, it, need to be referred to out of district placements, or are these all kids who would be staying within our district? At this point, it's mostly going to be students within the district, but we are looking at the students who currently have like individualized support of an EA or a TA for academic reasons. So that there might be a piece of that. Um, I think, I'm trying to think, off the top of my head, I believe maybe all of the recommended students except one does have a TA or an EA attached to them. So if they went into the inclusion program, and this is something I feel strongly about, if they required that kind of individualist support all the time, they're really not an appropriate inclusion candidate. Right. They need to be able to function independently. You don't want eight TAs in the room. No, 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 no. We don't want any TAs in the room because you know they should be able to function independently. The teacher is going to make sure that we're doing what we need to do for the student. So, so um, there are um, you said 930 students with IEPs. Mm -hmm. um, 70 of them are uh, out of district, so that's 860 mm -hmm. uh, students. 48 teachers is a ratio of about 18 students per teacher. Is mm -hmm. that appropriate, or would you like to have more? I always like to have more. <laughs> that, not in fairness, though, that remaining 800-ish includes about 200 CPSC students. So then we're down to 650-ish. Okay, so that, 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 that starts making more. Okay. Yes, yes. Okay. That does. So that's our kind of comprehensive pre-K through 12, 930 students. Right, because I was going to say our gen ed is around 20, and then you're right. You're, We're at 18, so it, right. it didn't. It didn't seem to make sense. Okay, yep. good. Um, so you're responsible for social work and psychology. Yes. But not guidance. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Uh, who is the? Uh, in the past, our 504 
director has been from, from guidance. Is that still the case? No. 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 Okay. Good. So now, because I always okay. thought, always no. thought, yeah, I always thought that that was a little bit of a problem, and you're sort of in charge of it, but you're not in charge of it. Correct. So okay. Yeah. Good. So I'm, I'm, yeah. Glad, I'm glad that's taken care of. Yep. I'm sorry, it's another thing no. you have to do. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> I did it in my previous district, so a lot of okay. districts use that model, and yes. it does tie together the way it's supposed to. Okay. Uh, so uh, two, two more questions. Mm -hmm. um, my my son is is 27 now, yeah. so this is all uh, very old. But at that point, somebody would be recommended for a speech three times a week, mm -hmm. and between meetings and sickness and everything else, they might go three weeks without having actually a session. Yes. Uh, so what monitoring is there in place to make sure that, that these services are provided, and then are there makeup services if mm -hmm. they aren't provided, et cetera? Yeah, so one of the things that I did when I took over for Leslie and Esther, who retired, was put a model in place where all of our elementary meetings are held on Tuesdays, and all of our secondary meetings are held on Thursdays. Now, of course, this goes out the window at annual review time, but the teachers can then schedule themselves appropriately, knowing that Tuesday is going to be a day that I might have meetings. So I might not schedule as many students that day, or if I don't have meetings, then I can use it to make sure that I can do makeups for the student I've had to miss. Um, the feedback from the staff has really been positive about that. They know when the meetings are. Another thing that we've been doing is instead of, because this would also take away from student time, is um, at the secondary level, we go to the buildings for the meetings. So now the staff isn't traveling back and forth and then canceling another class because now they have to find a parking spot here or over at Shriver, which you know is not always fun. Um, so that gives them, again, more time to be where they need to be. Um, and again, the feedback from the staff has been that you know, they, they're not finding they need to cancel as many. Well, that, that sounds great. Uh, my last question is, what are our outcome numbers in terms of um, regions diplomas, local diplomas, CDOS, and certificates? The, uh, I, I, you might not have I don't have the top of my head. But I do have right. rep rep percentages of how, of how the students play out. It really depends yeah. on the regions exam. Yeah. But um, I know, I'm trying to, I know, based like, on the report card, I. I want to say in the maybe low to mid 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, region to region, it varies. Right, so and year to year, it varies. But for some reason, like low to mid 80s really yeah. comes to That's mind for me. Yeah. Yeah. Which, is, which is pretty good, actually. I mean, well, I mean, when you consider there are kids who are in out of district placement, you know, so there's a certain percentage right, of kids that, that are mm -hmm. in an academic program. Correct. Um, but I, I, and then we have very few people with CDOS. Very few, very few. Um, right now we use a single agency that comes in and works with us. We meet about two times a year to review her caseload. And this is something I, I want to get bigger. I mean, she might have like six or seven students she's working with. It, it should be bigger than that. It, it should, should, because I mean, you know, the problem with if you don't get the local diploma, mm -hmm. then, you know, you can want to be, you can, want to be trained for the job uh, mm -hmm. market and yet still two years down the road decide you want to go to community college and take a couple of courses. Right. And if you don't have that local diploma, then you're precluded from doing that Correct. unless you can take a, a GED. GED. Right, right. Which right. is hard because that's test-based and that's generally the hardest thing for people to Correct. do. Correct, And I've heard it's only getting harder. Yeah, right. that one. Yes. Yeah, they did some changes to that a few years ago. So, yeah. Okay, cool. thank you. Mm -hmm. um, just to tag on to Larry's question, too, uh, back to sort of kids who are walking that line, trying to take regions classes, attempting mm -hmm. to, because they have to, in order to get the local diploma, they have to be attempting, mm -hmm. right? right? There has to be an attempt. Correct. So are we making sure that A, as many kids as possible are making those attempts so that they're eligible, mm -hmm. and B, that there are safeguards in place so that, let's say, 
they are attempting to take that region's exam, and now with the four plus one, they're taking different ones mm -hmm. because they need that plus one from somewhere, and who knows if it's going to be math, if it's going to be science, if it's right. going to be... Are we making sure that if they are failing those exams, mm -hmm. but passing the class, mm -hmm. that that failing grade is not causing them to fail that class? Because obviously we want to give them a big boatload of right. attempts. We want them to take the second math, the second science, right. the second social studies, so that hopefully one of them gives the points that they need for that mm -hmm. diploma. Right. But if they try all three and fail two of them and you need right. another math class to graduate because you need the three math classes, mm -hmm. they're not failing that math class as well right. because they're attempting Correct. To, to look for this pathway right. to graduation. And so my question is what kind of safeguards do we have in place for that? So the first question that you asked was about you know, how are we making sure that all the students, the special ed teachers at Schreiber are wonderful. Christy McAleer, I can't say enough about her truthfully. She, I could join yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, she's, <laughs> she's just amazing. Yeah. Um, a good example I can give you is the uh, English 11 regions. Most students take that in June of their 11th grade year. We have our students sit for it in January, because that's really one of the most more difficult ones for students. Um, so we have them start in January, so that then we get an idea of where you are, what it looks like, how do we get you ready? We also have an extra excellent prep. Pro I can attest yes. to that. So. Right. Uh, yes. Right, and then we do give additional prep and support to the students as we need to. Um, the second question, are they not failing the classes? So I just actually learned this the other day. The way Schreiber does their grading, for those of you that don't know, quarter one, two, three, four, they're each weighted differently. So quarter one is the least amount of weight, and Schreiber, uh, the fourth quarter is the most amount of weight. They count a regions the same weight as quarter one. So it has the least amount of impact on the student's grade overall. Um, I'm not aware, and I think Christy would be bringing it to my attention, if the students were failing the class. I'm hearing more that they're failing the Regences, but not the class. That, right. My concern would be <coughs> right. that that Regents exam, a kid with a 65 in the class and a 50 on that Regents exam, right. has now tipped to a 64. Correct. And now because, they, and only because they're trying for those points, right. Right. then they're now missing a math class and having to either right. go to summer school or whatever, and I just want to make sure that we're trying to look at that, that yeah. we're not sending kids to summer school because yeah, no, of one test grade right. versus when that kid has clearly, right. as far as the teacher's concerned, mastered the material. Right. So. right. The other thing is that if they retake the math, like to your point, let's say they take it again, we don't go back and recalculate their grade right. in the class. So now it's just, and then eventually the final transcript is only going to have their highest grade anyway. Right. All the others. Again, I'm more concerned with right. like, you know what? They're going to try geometry and right. they tried earth science. They got the points on earth science. They don't need geometry. They failed geometry. They don't really need to take that test again. Right. But they do need a second math credit. They Correct. don't need a second math regents. Right. But they do need that the math credit. credit. So right. that would be more where I'm going with mm -hmm. this. More yeah. Than just, just because of the insanity of all these pathways right. has yes. sort of increased yeah. the need right. to do a right. little bit more of this. Yeah, that's why, and again, Christy and the guidance counselors are so on top of this that I, I, I'll follow up with them, but I don't know that anybody's really following <laughs> Yeah, I would knock on something. Thank you. This is an extremely uh, thorough overview, and uh, I think many of us, if not all of us, learned just a little bit something, so incredibly important. Um, for, I'll be mentioning this often as far as our subgroups when it comes to graduation, which is ultimately the most important thing, right? So if we look at our um, students with disabilities, that, that subgroup um, in a four-year cohort, for the most part, longitudinally, it's around mid-70s, right? So 
I, I'm thinking over the next several years, and I know there's a lot of factors that go into it. If you look at a five-year cohort, of course, it's a little bit higher. Um, but ultimately, we want to be up there in the 90s mm -hmm. as, as quickly as possible. And I think it starts with two ends, which I think you totally addressed. One is, how do we strengthen when students enter school and while they are here in, in our elementary years, which I think why this ICT um, component is incredibly important. So I'm really thankful to see that we're moving in that direction. The other end of that is when kids exit, right? Mm -hmm. And we've had many conversations about this. Mm -hmm. As far as having a transition coordinator where their sole job 24-7 yeah. is making sure those kids, once they're at Shriver's, they learn how to transition into the workforce or university level, whatever it is. That is their sole job. And so I know over the next several years, that is something mm -hmm. we will look to budget. And when we talk about budget, it doesn't mean that, you know, if we're talking about adding ICT teachers or a transition coordinator, right. it doesn't mean we're gonna keep adding to the budget. It means at some point we have to look at our budget and mm -hmm. then possibly remove things that we feel are either no longer effective mm -hmm. or we can recalibrate in some ways. I, I think that's a, it's important to balance those scales. So my, my question is, when it comes to local diploma and the region's diploma, because I think there, there's, the, the waters are a little bit muddied in this way. Mm -hmm. So when, a, when a, a child has a local diploma, what does that mean when and if they want to go to a community college or a trade school? Mm -hmm. um, are all the doors open? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what does that entail? Because I, I think, Back in the day, right, there was a general diploma right. in New York State, right, and then there was a region saying yeah. you were fine either way. Right. All right, so maybe if you wouldn't mind, maybe just unpack that a little bit. Sure. sure. So, you know, New York happens to be, what, one of two states at this point that has the regions and the regions sure. diploma? So what's outside of New York, I'm that? sorry, what's the other state? I think yeah. it's California. California. Okay. Yeah, I, I think they still have them. But, um, and much less. They yeah. don't have as many. <clears throat> so the local diploma outside of New York is a diploma. They, they don't distinguish necessarily between a regions and advanced regions. Now, yes, they understand that there's higher credentials, but it's still a diploma. And then even here in New York, it's a diploma. You've gone to school, you've met your requirements, you've left with a diploma that says you, you achieved the standards you were supposed to achieve. Um, in New York, obviously, there's a different understanding of what a regions diploma is versus a local. But again, it opens up those doors with colleges for students. You, they're not excluded because they don't have a Regents Diploma. It does get them into college. Um, to your point from earlier, if they just have a CDOS credential, they can't get into college. But with a local diploma, they absolutely can. So, yeah. Why don't we leave up questions from the community? Oh, I have a question. Oh, okay, sorry. No, sorry. Um, just a question on the special classes. Yes. Um, rise to mile, the ratio of uh, students to teacher goes up, obviously. Yes. Likewise, TLC to invest. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, it's like a 20% more kids in the class, really. Mm -hmm. Is that due to financial constraints, or is there some kind of academic benefit, or what's the motivation for that, or the rationale for that? The students don't require the same direct hands-on instruction at the element that they do at the elementary level, and because we're moving more to that vocational world of post-secondary high school, uh, post-secondary types of activities, we work more on getting them to be independent, um, and they really can function in the larger groups. Um, so, yeah, hasn't been a problem. Deborah Brooks, for the yeah. record. Um, you mentioned at the very beginning that the district is responsible for educating children with special needs who attend the private schools. Yes. Mm -hmm. Did I understand that correctly? And so, 
how does that, so the district pays for this as well? The, we pay, we provide the personnel and we pay for it, or? Are you talking about the kids, so there's two kinds, like the state approved schools, or do you mean the district of location schools of St. Peter's mm -hmm. and, and Vincent Smith? I think that's what you're talking yes, about, right? Yes, the latter. Okay, so yes, we provide the services. However, the New York State allows for a funding mechanism that if you are a student that lives in Oyster Bay, Fort Washington is able to, to provide the service, but we're also able to build back Oyster Bay for that student. Okay, so that works the same way that when Fort Washington sends a student to a, another district, Fort Washington pays, pays for that, that student who resides within the district but is educated outside the district, and yes. so it works in reverse. Correct. Correct. And, and we, we only pay for the related services, correct? Correct. We don't, we don't, pay, we don't pay the tuition. Right. We just pay for the speech and the OT and the PT and everything else. Right. Right. Those are the services. Moving on, and just a reminder to identify yourself for the podcast, please. Hi, I'm Kara Christopher-Ellis. Uh, I just had a question about the inclusion class. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we're saying that it's going to potentially be at SUSE, mm -hmm. and that you you bus kids from the other schools. Mm -hmm. How is this something that you're looking for um, to, to open it up to the other schools eventually, or is it solely going to be at SUSE? And the question I have about it is, one, how you kind of touched on how you're going to pick the kids that is going to be. Um, but to your point about the RISE program and the kids being transitioned from school to school, not kind of having a home school, mm -hmm. the question is if you're picking a Salem student in second grade to go to SUSE, mm -hmm. now that's kind of a similar feeling. As a parent of a child in the RISE program, I can kind of speak to what that transition was, what it feels like for that child to not be in the home school of their other kids. Right. Um, and from a parent perspective, some people are, they kind of are a little secretive of my child gets services. So how do you pick that kid? Now you are calling that student out. They are knowing that they're a Salem bound student mm -hmm. who's now going to SUSE. Now everybody knows that they're in that co-teaching class because of the special ed. Because mm -hmm. you're not bringing kids from the gen ed perspective into that SUSE classroom. So really, any out-of-school child, everybody else knows. And some parents, it doesn't matter, but some parents, it really does matter. Right. How are you addressing that? And so that's where I'm kind of wondering, will you bring it to the other schools? Mm -hmm. I know financially you have to do it this but way. But. I think, so the, the first question is a little bit easier. It depends. You know, let's see how the program grows, where it goes. Um, what the data is showing us about the effectiveness of the program. Because um, that's something, you know, in meeting with the consultant the other day, I, I really want to take a look at. Um, if it's something that the demand is there and it needs to go to other buildings, we'll take a look at how we can do that. So that's, it's not outside the realm of possibility for me if that's what, what the, the information is showing to us. The secondary piece, actually, Dr. Mioli and I have talked about a bunch of times um, about that component. And you said it, you know from being, living it, um, you know, our concern with starting it is kindergarten is we don't really know the kindergartners. You know, they're CPSE students, we know them, but we don't know them and what it's going to look like. And it makes it difficult to grow a program in kindergarten. Um, obviously, it's an optional program. You know, we're not going to make anybody go. Um, I do think that the excitement in the community in general, at least what I'm hearing, um, there might not be as much concern with that for parents. 
once the students are in the, the building and in the program, the teacher's responsibility does become making them part of that SUSE community and not highlighting that they went to Salem or anywhere else. Um, but that is definitely something that Dr. Mioli and I have talked about and really want to speak more to the HSAs about and just getting more support for them. Uh, two questions. Uh, one is the, um, the, the special ed students in the inclusion class are going to remain static. They're going to stay in the program until they no longer need the service. Correct. Are the gen ed students going to rotate, or is the same edge? Uh, if a gen ed student is put in that class in second grade, they get the benefit of it through fifth grade? I don't know. No, normally, no. It's, yeah, normally it's a random selection of students. So then, yes, it goes back to Mrs. Rista Ferratis' point that now you've really highlighted these students, and, and you know, it does the downside of it, yes. Um, but I wouldn't expect us to keep the same genetics. Okay. And I also uh, just, <coughs> if the, the data generally shows that student, that the gen ed students in uh, co-teaching classes that do better. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so, um, but, so though that's only going to be available to SUSE students, which creates a slight inequity across the district. So right. if we can expand it out more or right. uh, take away some of that stigma by busing some of the gen ed students as well and sort of uh, bringing it up, you know, that would sort of, uh, might, might, right. might work. Right. Well, Dr. Bailey did share with us that years ago when he had the program there, yes, they first he had the parents, the general education parents that didn't want them, and then they were fighting to get in there. So we do expect that to happen again. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to, real quick, I, you, you bring up really good points. I, yeah. I think there are things, and I'm a parent who was a child in an inclusion program in a, in a different district. So I, I totally get from a parent perspective. I, I think the things that we can control over time is some of the nuances that you brought up in the first part of your question. The, the really important thing though is the home, it is, to, is to go to a place, if you're starting in kindergarten, to stay in one building over time. I think that is incredibly important. And if we can work toward that, I think some of those other wrinkles or different edges that we're bringing up can probably work itself out at some point. But I think that consistency and being in one place, if that is our aim over time, Absolutely. I think that's gonna help mitigate some of the other things that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ryan, I know you said that you have your eye sort of on seven students or so for this class, but can you give us a sense of how big is the population of children, not the gen ed, but the, the mm -hmm. students who would benefit from being in an inclusion classroom mm -hmm. um, because of the services that they get right now? Because obviously right. we're talking about the gen ed students benefit right. as well. Right, right. Um, but would support eventually multiple classrooms? Is seven students like your your choice to pilot it, or is that is that the number of kids that really there are? That's well, so in meeting with the psychologists, and not only just for this, but when we do it for Weber, that's about the number of students we get. Okay. Um, we're not getting too many more students that you know are requiring it. You know, you, you asked about benefiting. You know, the research shows everybody pretty much would benefit from it. So the more we could do, that would be great. Um, but that number's been pretty kind of stable over the course of time that I've been here when we look at Weber. We don't have kids fighting to get in there. We're not looking at opportunities where students are blocked out of the program that really need it. Um, we've had situations where, in conjunction with the building principal, if, I, if we have to go above that number, we go above that number. I'm not going to block students out um, because of that. If we get an abundance, then it's a different conversation of how to grow the program so that we're getting all the students that need it. 
Um, and I know you said sort of a benchmark is about a third of the class. Mm -hmm. Is that a guideline for a guess on a maximum, or is that a minimum number as well? I mean, in other words, if you had several ICT classes functioning mm -hmm. with two or three or four mm -hmm. um, of the special ed students in there, mm -hmm. would that be as effective, or do you really need that bigger population in there? The research does show that a third of the class is really the best way to go. Otherwise, okay. it's just too many, you know, too small. Okay. You know, and you're not, they're not getting, everybody's not getting the benefit. And then to go to beyond that, now you're skewing the class too much and the needs of the students might outweigh the other group of students. So it's not just, it's the number, it's the ratio of the students that matters too. It's not yes. just the fact that you have this co-teaching model. Correct. Yes. Okay. Correct. Any other, Julie? Hi, Julie Epstein, parent counsel. So I have two questions. So my first question, I just want to clarify. So. From a district level perspective, you're saying for the student number of students from an inclusion classroom standpoint that there'd be like 42 students in total, seven students per grade. Mm -hmm. That's all that we have. Not that's all, but mm -hmm. that's our quantity within the district that have been identified. Yes. Not beyond that, no. and that stays consistent. Yes. Um, from the Rise and TLC program, you said that you were looking. It would be lovely if everything could housed in one building, what are the numbers for those programs? Um, about 36, because there are 20, there are 12 in each class, so if you look at the three sections, okay. you know, it's 36. 36 total of the combined, then. right? 36 students. Right. And so then, of the 900 and some odd students, mm -hmm. your less, from a K through 5 standpoint, is the 42 plus 36, is what you're saying, receiving the benefits. That's not low, that's, that's really our number. Well, you have to realize that um, anybody who has an IEP is considered a right. special ed student. Right. So even somebody just getting speech, speech. So that's just right. getting well, that they would classify in any of those right. other standpoints. And right. then my thank you for that clarification. Um, so my next question is, is somewhat to piggyback off of Paris. So it's wonderful if you are able to implement the pilot program, uh, call it a pilot program of the inclusion yeah. classroom. And let's say you get those second and third graders into that and they go to SUSA. This is a very budget-dependent process, and if it, if to her point, if you get a third grader, who then, if the budget for some reason or another, we aren't approving that next section of a first and a fourth grade teacher, what happens to that third grader once they've been in that inclusion classroom, they've been relocated to a SUSA, and then they're going back? Like we're we're looking it we're looking forward down the road to have right. contingency plans to help with that kind of transitioning mm -hmm. standpoint, which could be disruptive, right. more disruptive to right. the student than Absolutely. otherwise, right? And I think yeah. Dr. Hines is going to take that. I would, I would love, <laughs> no, I would, I would love to answer that. Um, and, and this really ties into yeah. our, our future work when it comes to crafting our vision and mission and core values. If this is priority one, that's never going to happen. And that's the reality. If this is something that we believe that our children deserve mm -hmm. and we should have, that's not even a conversation. You know, unless Governor Cuomo says, you know, poor Washington, uh, you know, not getting any state aid next year, which I probably shouldn't say that on podcast. <laughs> but but the, rea the reality is, if this is a priority for us every single year until it's there, and then we're going to sustain mm -hmm. it, then we have to look at other areas within our school district to make sure that this stays in place. Because I agree. Yeah. May I add to that the wrinkle that in the governor's proposal, um, he's proposing to shift 18%
and Larry, maybe you can correct me if I mistake this, he's looking to shift about 18% of the aid that we get for special education onto the district, meaning the state is going to cut 18% of the aid that it usually gives us for special that, that, education. That's for, a sm that's for a smaller subgroup. It's not the total. Okay. And, uh, it's I just want to, that's why I say I want to make sure I'm saying it's, it's for correct. people in, uh, put into residential schools. Oh, great. And, uh, and okay. I don't think we have very many okay, of those. Okay, no, great. And, and, and thank you and for it, clarifying. And he's, <laughs> tried, he's tried that before, and each mm -hmm. time it's been knocked back. Yep. So, uh, but, uh, you yeah, know, uh, our special ed funding, I guess Dr. Mm -hmm. Westfield or mm -hmm. Dr. Allen can handle it better, but a lot of that is federal funds that right. pass through the state, and it's hard for them to glom too much of it. Correct. I'm right. glad. Thank you. For, that's why I said. <laughs> 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 Any other questions for me? Hello, hi. This is from Heidi. Um, Jennifer Scott Robinson. Um, I am so super happy to hear about this extension to your program. Um, as a parent who has been driving my children all around Long Island since they were two years old, this is fantastic because summer is really a disaster. It's, you know, you're driving here for PT. You're driving here for OT. Oh, speech is going to be over there, and then we've got to go out of town for this and meet the teacher at the library. So I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's always the chance that you can go out of district for summers, but that's yeah. amazing. Um, I really want to know how, we, how are you going to go about um, grouping kids? Is it by grade? Is it by, what, like, how is this going to be all housed in one school? Is it going to be, you know, K to 12? I just, just a little, little tidbit. A little taste. A little taste, because I'm taste. a little excited. So most of that is still up in here. My head is not made into the paper. Most, you know, my focus really has been on the, the yeah. inclusion program this year. Um, what what I've existed in in my previous slides was that it is basically an extension of what you offer during the year. Okay. So using Rise and TLC as an example, there would be Rise and TLC summer school program classes. Um, there would be classes for students that require resource room or speech. There, there's different classes for each of those levels. It mirrors basically what we do here. Um, okay. But I haven't gotten to the yeah. other. I know what I want to do, but I don't know what will happen. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Any other? Hi, my name is Layla Lewis. Um, I just had a question. When you spoke about putting the 812 and the 1211 in the same building so that there isn't the transition, I just wondered like, when that was going to happen and what buildings you were looking to do it in, if you know. I don't know. I, I know in my head, again, where I'd like them to be. Um, you know, I, I think the staff at both Daly and Guggenheim are very accommodating. Our students do feel at home at both of those buildings. Um, so I would probably look towards something there. but. You know, unfortunately, then we have conversations about space yeah. and about transportation and about the population of the school in general. So it's, it's not always as clean. Um, we've had some conversations yeah. in the past about this. Um, it's on my radar, definitely. It's, it's something I do feel passionate about. Um, the when and the how, I'm not exactly sure yet. Anybody else? Or is it sort of a wide range based on whatever their interests are? 
it's pretty specific, but it's based on their interests. So right now, the, the consultant that we have comes in, she meets with the students, she finds out what they do, what they like, what they want to know more about. She seeks out opportunities for them. In some cases, the students might even already have a job, and it might be in an area that they're really you know, interested in, um, so we can even use that. Um, and then she works on securing placements and sites and getting the students there, and it kind of rolls from there. But it is driven by their interests first. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not like, um, there's not sort of a handful of sorts of careers that we are producing? Not at this point, and that's part of, you know, this transition piece for us. We should have a wide range of things that our students can participate but in. But are there certain um, requirements within it uh, that they have to meet certain sort of benchmarks in the in the C DOS. So, yes. so it isn't it isn't totally open. Somebody can't right, decide no, I want to become a poet and write right. poetry and get a C right, 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 right. <laughs> Definitely not. But you know, we don't have a lot of work sites for students to choose from. Okay. So building up that that would be important. And is there any follow up in the future to see how uh, those students have fared in their in those careers that they pursued while here. Right, so one of the other things that special education participates in is what they call the state performance plan indicators. And there's 15 of them, 14 of them. One of them, which we are, it's a rotating cycle. Every six years, a district has to re-report on the same one. So they're monitoring this data across the state, but what districts are responsible for differs every year. One of those indicators is specific to that. So every six years, we participate in a study. Um, I want to say it's through Potsdam College, but I could be wrong. Um, it's one of the colleges. Um, they get a list from us of all of our graduates from the previous year, what their post-secondary plans were, what we have. We send out consents, and they will interview our graduates. Um, and then we get feedback from the state in terms of how our students are doing. Are we really preparing them for what we say we're preparing them for? So that's every six years. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? I have one more weird question. It's like Colombo. Just one, one, one more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering with our students who are declassified, I, I, what's the the uh, classification, if, if there is a typical classification that is more often declassified than others? So I'm, ju I'm just wondering what that would be with the myriad of classifications that we have. Based on the converse, just basic conversations I'm having, yeah. I'm going to say that it's more of our speech language impaired and our other health impaired students. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, those are going to be the two biggies that, that we do it with. Got it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. You're for welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.